Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. The 37th chapter of the theme, perhaps that you learned in Sunday school, uh, might have been junior church, but at some point, if you were in church as a young person, you had a teacher that instructed on Joseph and his coat of many colors. And in keeping of how God pities us, I think of this, in teaching to pray, in teaching how to beseech God, the Lord compared the Father above as one that gives, James says of this too, that giveth good gifts. All good gifts and perfect gifts cometh down from the Father above, and who there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. The Lord, in teaching his disciples regarding prayer, said, Which of you, which of you, if thy friend had need and asked, if your children had need, which of you would give him a stone for bread? And he follows down through that and he speaks about how the Lord giveth good gifts. Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he giveth us richly all things to enjoy. And we think of this coat of many colors here in the 37th chapter of Genesis. It was a treasured gift that Jacob had given to a treasured son. And yet he was not his only son. He would have some 10 11 other sons at this time, all of them except for one. That would be Benjamin later on, preceding Joseph in age. And in a great sense, they were uh, quite a bit older than him. They were men, and the Scripture indicates that Joseph at this particular time and place in his life was at best an older adolescent, 16, 17, 18 years old, there about that time. He's a young man. Um, there's so much of his life and expectations and hopes and dreams that lies yet ahead. No doubt he had missed some of the trials that had pursued the family. Uh, the family even preceding Joseph and Jacob and Isaac with granddaddy Abraham had been quasi-nomadic. They had traveled to some extent. They had lived in different places. They had been plagued by uh, uh, famine. They had had times of warfare, I think, of Abraham. Isaac had been chased all over the countryside digging wells and seeing them filled in. I mean, this, this had been that which had fallen upon the family. At times they had been uh, sought after and hated, and at times they had harmed others, as we uh, recounted to you some time ago in the 34th chapter of Genesis. And Joseph seemingly missed a lot of that. He's a young man. He's a loved man. But he's a man in this particular passage that his very life hangs delicately in the balance. It's a frightening time. It's at this great time, as we read here in verse number 22, that Reuben, one of the older brothers, when he heard that they're after his blood, that they want to kill him and destroy him, Reuben cries out in verse number 21, let us, let us not kill him. He said to them, shed no blood. It's interesting in verse 22 when you consider the events of the preceding chapter with Dinah, Simeon, and Levi, and that treacherous behavior by which they engaged in all the men of Shechem and destroyed them. Reuben's thinking yet another time in which, another time in which blood is going to be shed. Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. Here's our phrase, and lay no hand upon him. And the purpose is given in the following verse, that he might rid him out of their hands. So if you put him here, it's in a wilderness... He'll be out of sight, out of mind. The heat of the moment will have passed. 
They'll let whatever insufferable attitude that they have against him cease. And I, as an older son, can go and gather him back at a later time. And I can bring him back to dad and will have spared his life. I think that was his intent. When you go down to the end of the chapter, uh, Reuben obviously leaves. And there's all this that befalls from um, uh, the casting in the pit. Reuben leaves sometime after that. And then there's the transaction that occurs where he sold uh, in, uh, to the, uh, m- the merchants he carried away into Egypt. And you find in verse 29 that Reuben returns into the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And look at his response. He rent his clothes. And frustration and grief and anguish and anger and disappointment and curiosity and packaged in all of these actions considering why this occurred. What are you guys doing? And then he continues, what am I supposed to do when I return home to dad? And they concoct a plan to take this very colored coat and to take it and to simulate in fact that he had been killed by a wild beast and to trick dad, and dad would grieve greatly for his beloved and thought lost son, Joseph. And this is a powerfully packed 36 verses. But our focus, somewhat in the morning hour and in this evening, is on verse 22, where Reuben says, Lay no hand upon him. Lay no hand upon him. I would remind you that in Genesis 22, when the Lord Uh, when uh, Abraham was offering Isaac upon the altar, this was the very similar phrase that the Lord spake. The angel of the Lord cried out to Abraham, Lay no hand upon him. We're not referencing again any type of corporal punishment that would defy other portions of scriptures, including the book of Hebrews. The idea here, also in the book of Genesis in the 22nd chapter, the idea here is not to unnecessarily harm him that is innocent. Isaac did nothing by which he should be uh, uh, injured at all. And when God had given this reprieve, God had commanded, if you will, if I can put it in our vernacular, touch not the child. And Reuben, perhaps having heard this from years gone by, this miraculous, divine, angelic sparing of his granddaddy's life, would cry out at this moment, seeing that Joseph was soon not to be with this world, if his brothers would get that way, would also commend them, Touch not the child. And I think by way of us tonight, as we have focused on our Sunday School Promotion Sundays, we've focused a little bit on our young folks in our church. I'm glad to see here tonight. That's also got to be the cry of parents today and of those that influence young children. It might be aunts, it might be uncles, it might be grandparents, it might be close friends to touch not the child, to not hinder them in a way in which would prevent them from accomplishing the full potential and acceptance of the will of God for their life. I'll point out quickly the first of these that we've covered some time before, but note, if you will, in verse number 14. Why would they touch him? Why would they injure him? They had no concern, no concern over his purpose. No concern over his purpose. I remember as a little kid, uh, I was an older brother, am an older brother, and I'd get out to play with some of the older kids, and here'd come one of my younger siblings. That used not to bother me when I was little, but as older I got, I didn't want to hang around with the kids. Sometimes they might have seemed to me to be a little bit of a, a bother, a nuisance, if you will. 
Joseph is not wandering around in Shechem pestering his brothers. He's there because daddy has commanded him to go and bring word back. You'll find that in verse number 14. He says, bring me word again. But yet we find Joseph, as documented in scriptures, he's wandering around the field. I remind you that it was not because he did not know where he was going. Shechem was an important place in the mind of Jacob. It was important to Abraham. It was important to all the sons of Jacob. Shechem is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12. It was the place of divine promise. Genesis chapter 12, that's where that unilateral covenant happened. Where God made what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. He was to pledge to him in the 12th chapter of a land, a seed, and a blessing. He did not make that covenant with Abraham in his conventional sense, but rather he lined up those blood sacrifices and he caused a great sleep to fall upon Abraham and the Lord himself passed through in the midst. And so that covenant being fulfilled is an eternal promise that God has made with himself on the behalf of Abraham. It is not contingent upon the life of Abraham. It is not contingent upon the deeds of Abraham. It is contingent on the person and the eternality of the Almighty God. And that occurred at Shechem. And that promise only occurred to Abraham and his descendants. Shechem was not as revered as other places, but it was a place where God had appeared with his fathers, Joseph's fathers. Shechem was the place of divine provision. Jacob had bought this land to rest his tent there. In fact, if you'll study through the book of Genesis, Shechem, and this particular veil in Shechem, is one of the only places in all the book of Genesis that you find that there's a transaction where the people or descendants of Abraham actually acquire land. All the other times it's somewhat nomadic, but there are a few times and a few places in Genesis where they buy just a parcel of that land. Shechem was one of those. Earlier in chapter 33... You'll find also that Shechem was a place of divine worship. He, Jacob, erects an altar there and offers sacrifices to the Lord. It was a place of divine revival. It's here in the 35th chapter that all the sons of Jacob, the older ones here, the ones that are trying to destroy Joseph, you know, he begs them. They surrender all of their idols and he buries them there at the oak that is by Shechem. It's a place of divine protection. You know, I'll say this a little bit, and um, I mean this in a general sense. But Shechem, Shechem was a place of divine protection because it was out of the way. It was not the place of a major trade route. It was just a narrow area with a narrow road that led down towards Jerusalem and one that ran north up towards Dothan, for which was a major supply route. Shechem was out of the way. You know, there's a lot that could be said, an application of wisdom that could be made in where our place of abode is. Now, I'm not one that fears the cities. I'm just not, but I'm also not one that's going to tempt things that occur in cities either. There's something about our society today with the wickedness, and it has been this way from centuries, the wickedness that is often present in a city-type atmosphere if you will, a city that never rests. The activity that bustles throughout the night, I have made it my habit over the last many years 
to, to pay attention to the news. And I am amazed at how many people in our city of Harrisburg here are, uh, get shot. And you know what time it usually is? It's dark. There's occasionally stuff that has ongoing days. But there's a lot to be said but a mass of people that cannot come apart and have their own space and take time and be away and rest. In Shechem, Shechem was a place of divine protection. It was out of the way. But when he goes to Shechem, his brothers aren't there. They're in Dothan. This land is a distant land. It's about 40 miles away. They tell us there's two wells there. It was a great plain. It's an easy place. It wasn't Shechem. It's an easy place just to go and eat and drink and let the sheep get fat and happy. And it's just convenient and it's easy. Of course, it was a place of entertainment because there was a caravan route that ran from Syria, clean through Dothan and down to Egypt. And that would be the very route these slave traders would take Joseph in. So what's our application? Touch not the child. Keep the child present in the place of God's blessing. Don't make excuses to travel into the place of trouble and wickedness. What a priority should have been made. I wonder if that's not part of the reason that Jacob considered this in the first place. Maybe they should have already been back. They've been gone too long. Jacob knew what it was. He was a herdsman himself. In fact, if you'll remember his story from his youth, he wasn't very good out in the wild. But he knew about sheep. He was a cunning man. Do you remember this? The whole story about the blessing that occurred. He understood this. He was a shepherd. He knew how long it took to get where you're supposed to do, do what you got to do and get back where they're at. These older brothers took absolutely no concern about the well-being of Joseph. You know, a great application to keep children in the place, to prioritize it, the place of blessing. I am not preaching against sports. I'm not preaching against entertainment and activities and hobbies. But beware when they begin to compete with the things of the house of God. I think sometimes parents try to live vicariously through their children. Say, well, I never got to do this when I was a little boy, and I'm going to make sure little Joey gets to... We don't have any little Joeys, do we? I don't think we do. Little Joey gets to have everything I didn't want. Listen, if your parents thought fit to keep you in a place of God's blessing, there was a good reason for it. Don't change course and think that your infinite skills and wisdom is better than the decisions they made. Keep them in the place of blessing. Keep them in the place of blessing. Notice verse 18. They had no concern over his position as a loved son. The verse says there in verse number 18, when they saw him afar off, and then it continues, even before he came near, they conspired against him. They're planning his physical hit before they can make out everything about him. He's afar off. Perhaps identified him by the color of his coat. You, know, you would think that if Joseph was precious in the eyes of daddy that that alone would warrant some level of security for Joseph. You would think that as Joseph's coming, even if they didn't like him, and the scripture talks earlier about them hating him and being envious of him, you would think, well, daddy loves him, and that ought to be a level of protection. They did not care about him regardless of how he loved. They hated his innocence. They hated the fact that God had spoke to him through dreams. In so much in verse number 4, they could not even speak peaceably to him. These are violent men. 
They are men that had hatred in their hearts as exposed earlier in books of Genesis and chapters of Genesis. These were men that had no concern for the innocence and affection that anyone, including Jacob, had for Joseph. That's our lesson we spoke of in the morning hour. Keep the child tender. Protect them from the corrupting aspects of the world system that would destroy them. No wonder the scripture says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Be very cautious. This world system does not care how much God loves you. The God of this world, the thief that cometh to kill, to steal, and destroy, doesn't care how much God loves you. He does not care how much God would want to use you or your child or your spouse. His ultimate aim and goal is to destroy them. And if we would seek to learn from the lessons of Joseph and his brother, we would have a concern for our children and for those in our sphere of influence and for the position they have as one that is loved by the Almighty God. I am completely blown away by the level of innocence that gets corrupted on a regular basis with children. And their heart begins to get hard and wicked. And there's a number of things, listen, there's a number of things that we can blame it on. And some of them we'd be close and some of them we'd be distant. But it's wretched in a society. And that society moves with each passing generation worse. And, and, and what makes it worse is that each passing generation gets further and further away from the principles of the Word of God. In so much that it's hardly to be able to be recognized anymore. Beware. Jesus said, children are mine. I love the children. Bring the children unto me. We spoke of this in the morning hour. And the fact remains that though Jesus has an affinity for them, this world and the God of this world has a destructive attitude. These sons of, of Jacob here had no concern over his position. Note number three, if you will. This brings us to verses number 24. They had no concern over his possession. No concern over his possession. Verse number 24, it says here, they took him. Um, they took him. They cast him into a pit. They take of this coat that he has given. In verse number 23, uh, that was on him, they strip him of his coat. There's a level of violence there. And of course, I'd be remiss as I consider verse 23 not to think of our Lord Jesus Christ who was stripped of his vesture as well. The powerful imagery that is given. These sons of Jacob so had great disdain for Joseph that they hated anything that he owned. This coat, the possession of his father, they didn't have any use for it. They saw no value in it, only a source of envy and putrid ill will. I think for application for us, we think of little children, our theme not to touch the child. Be careful about the possessions the children have. Now, I'm not talking about matchbox cars and little toys. I'm rather talking about the talents and gifts that God has naturally or supernaturally bestowed upon them. Baseball's in season right now, so I'll pick on that for a minute, but you could make anything application. It's not the end of the world. I marvel at the amount of time that parents and society place on things that have no real lasting value. 
I kind of be honest, I miss the days where some of the classic education was present, where little children were taught, you know, music, something that they could engage in over the course of a lifetime. There'll come a time. Let me just poll you for a minute. How many of you had a hobby? And I'm really not asking the young folks here. You've got to have some gray hair about you, at least a gray hair. But you had a hobby as a youth that your physical age right now prevents you from doing today. You played baseball? Couldn't do it? One of my favorite ball players, I've watched him literally all of my life. Plays for St. Louis, Albert Pujols. He's still playing in Major League Baseball. He's like 90,000 years old. Six home runs and he'll have 700. It amazes me. But you know what? He's not clipping them like he used to. It's not because his won't died. His ability has waned. That's going to happen to all of us. Be careful. These little children, they represent a replenishment of talent and from the spiritual side, a supernatural gift that God has given to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we force them into missions work or force them into a pulpit or force them into a class to teach, but I do think that we ought to prepare the way for them to minister in. Zach, Zacharias, over in the gospel, knew that his son, John, of whom he did not appreciate the name, was going to be a prophet of God. Now, I realize we could focus a lot on Zachariah's willfulness and the naming of the child. I understand that. But it was miraculous. John was one of the few children born who had his name presented prior to his birth, of whom his parents knew somewhat early on, before perhaps they really knew they were angelically conveyed of this sort. John the Baptist. It should be a no small wonder that Zachariah paved a little bit of the way for John. That's what I'm talking about. You know, there's a lot of talents and gifts that have great, and I'm, I'm merging two of them. A talent being something that is naturally given. When I speak of gift, I'm talking of something that is supernaturally given as a child of God. But oftentimes parents just, we, we just don't seem to really care about that. Man, if your child has a fantastic ability to memorize... Why would you have them, why would you encourage them to memorize Beckett baseball stats? Give them something that has eternal value, at least a moral value in this life. There's a place for it. They, these children of Jacob, touched the child in a sense that they had no concern over his possessions. Keep the child unspotted. Yes, keep the child uncorrupted. Allow them early to minister before the Holy God. Do not rush them into the filthy, corrupting, confusing system that will taint these precious treasures that God has bestowed only briefly to us. Touch not the child. A fourth one, if you will, look in verse 25. I know, really even reflecting back to 24 a moment, he's in the pit. And I would have you note that in this pit, it's empty. There's no water in it. Verse 24, you come to 25. They, these other brothers, likely minus Reuben, sat down to eat bread. They lifted up their eyes, looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels. 
bearing spicery and balm and myrrh and going and carrying it down to Egypt. I want you to emphasis on this. They had absolutely no concern over his person. They cast him into a pit. Now, no statistics are given on this pit. I don't know if it's six foot deep or six meters deep. Do you see what I did there at crossing of two systems? Get you to thinking? I don't know if it's 20 feet deep or six foot deep. I don't know how wide it was. I don't know how, I'm certain it was rocky. I don't know how many rocks were in there. But I can imagine to be cast into something brings indicatively to my mind that there was a force there with an unpleasant thud at the end of it. There's no water in the pit. There's no essence that there's any food in the pit. And where are they at? They've gone from thence and sat down to eat their hamburger. No concern over his person. No water, no bread. They're eating, he's not. Note this, this is important. They have placed him in a place of direct isolation. No concern over his person. They don't care about his well-being. They don't care about his aspirations. And I'd be remiss if I missed this one. There's no concern about a future inheritance. Because he is their brother, he is entitled to a portion that comes from their father. They don't care what God wants to do with him. They don't care what daddy wants from him. Let him be cut off and isolated. You know, we'll stop for a moment and pause on this. Our application to consider is to keep the child safe. Isolation for children is not conducive to well-being. Not when they're five, and most certainly not when they're 15. Now you marvel at this if you will. But it's a wonder a lot of the atrocities committed by these teenage, usually boys, when they investigate them, why is it they always spend a lot of time to themselves? Have you ever noticed that? They're holed up somewhere with digital friends. That fellow down in Texas, his friend was in Germany. This girl's never met him. They had only recently started connecting and are texting back and forth. Or they don't even write well. They're not academically inclined. They can't stitch a sentence together, but they have written manifestos. It's like a personal diary of venting. Not to a person, but to a screen. A level of isolation is not a good thing especially in the adolescent world. It's not a good thing as an adult. Sometimes we mistake a level of rugged individualism or personal responsibility and somehow thinks that that's me and me alone. It's not good for you to be that way. It's not good, the Lord said of Adam. It's the first criticism, and it was a divine criticism, but it's the first criticism that God made of His creation. It's not good that Adam should what? Be alone. Now listen, what bad website was Adam going to go to? What drug was he going to take? You think of all the sins that plague society, which one was he going to commit? I mean, it's amazing, they found one. But I'm saying all of the temptations... Even in that perfect place, the Garden of Eden, God made a deliberate statement. It's not good 
that man should be alone. It's still not good that man should be alone. That's why we have cities and townships and hamlets and boroughs. There's a level of safety in that. I won't go too far in this, but let me back you. How many remember, uh, I spoke of this some time ago as an example, but maybe in the summer, you remember Ruby Ridge back in the early 90s, that fella? He, he, he got held up on charges and he ran up to his place that he owned up almost in the uh, Canadian border and they sent the agents in. The amazing thing, his daughter testified of this, a friend testified of this, federal officials testified of this. Almost all of it could have been avoided. But he was so isolated that the advice and counsel he was receiving, the imagination of his mind, turned him against everything he couldn't even think straight. Had it not been for one man, one man, that walked all the way in there, unarmed, passed a bunch of guys up to a door with guns pointing out him, they'd have all died. One man with some sense. It's not good to be alone. They put this child in an isolated place. The thief cometh not, John 10, but to kill, to steal, and destroy. Children need protecting. Dangers abound. Listen, dangers abound in the internet. Dangers abound on TV. Dangers abound in a library system. I wouldn't just let my children go in a public library system and randomly pick out books and say, this is a good thing for me to read. They abound in school systems. They abound in neighborhoods. They, the sons of Jacob, were able to abuse Joseph in some degree because of his youth and inexperience. These men were seasoned men. They had seen physical combat. Many of them, or at least some of them, had taken the lives of other men. And they fully intended to gobble Joseph up as well. Now, I'm not one that suggests that there's an evil lurking behind every bush. And every time that bush's leaves shake, whoo, there's something evil popping out of it. I don't feel that way about life. I don't think that's the case. But you'd be remiss if you took the other extreme and said, really, it's all for nothing. I can tempt fate as it were, and I can flirt with things, and nothing's really going to happen. You'd be remiss to do that. You'll regret that decision one day. It marvels to me how much growing wickedness and morality and how young children are, that they are subjected to growth. Listen, children today are subjected to things at four and five years old on public TV that I was a full-grown teenager, maybe early adult, before I really heard anything about that in the public eye. When I was 16, 17, 18 years old, they were going through the Clinton-Lewinsky hearing. How many remember that? Do you re- the newspapers carefully worded things? You'd have to go on some of the cable stuff to really find out about it. That wasn't that long ago. And today that's talked about in open in political venues like it's a normal thing. There's dangers. The danger of isolation. Why? Because he's seeking to destroy. Certainly it could be said 
that if the evil one cannot attack the adults, if they have committed their lives to Christ, then certainly the children will be the next one he seeks to lay his hands on. There's a lot of things that come to mind for time's sake. I'll move on. I'll give you this fifth one. Look at verse 20. Back up just a moment. Come now, therefore, let us slay him, cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast have devoured him. And note this almost with sarcastic refrain. We shall see what will become of his dreams. I rehearse to you that these dreams, they, their dad knew, were divine. His sheaf of wheat and all the other brothers bowing down to him. Then the second dream of the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bowing down. And even Jacob said, what, your mom and I and all your brethren rebuked him. They knew from whence these dreams came that they were divinely given. I'll remind you of this. They took no concern over his potential, the dreamer. Let's see what happens to his dreams. These were given of God, but they were hated. He was to be a provider of sustenance, a shelter for danger. He had been equipped both in his temperament and his mind and his ability to do things of which they had not considered. He was to deliver many people from death. It was no accident that he was in the king's court. Now you can look at this as providence, and I believe that truly the said. And you can note the divine providence of how God, through His greatness, overcame, um, not even the best of words, through His foreknowledge, through His foreknowledge, knew the actions of men. But at that child's young age, God gave him the temperament. God gave him the understanding. Those were all present. You look at a young child, they have a potential. On the human aspect, there's a potential. But on the divine aspect for the young, younger child that comes to Christ, there's a supernatural potential. The application, keep the child focused. Remind them that they are born with a purpose. It's one of the reasons that I think theologically a Bible Christian has to take an affronted defiant view against evolutionism. Just at the mode of life, one says there's purpose and the other one says there are accidents. If your life was accidental, it's cheap, it's casual with no intent. But if your life has a purpose, God has made you with the genetic DNA that He wanted you to have. Amen. That's how he's made you. You don't have to wonder if you need to be a little girl or a little boy. God has made you into... And by the way, let me tell you this too. He said it was good. He said it was good. You know what that means? A little girl in the sight of God is a good thing. A little boy in the sight of God, that's a good thing. We've got to be careful sometimes how we, we, we often look at this as one second class, that lays second class. I love the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In defending his apostolic position, Paul speaks about marriage and labor and work as his apostleship. 
And he makes an interesting statement in verse number 4. He said, have I not right as the other disciples, like Cephas, to lead about a sister as a wife? You, you know, he's not talking about marrying a sister. You know what he's saying? A believer. A gal Christian. Not a guy Christian, a gal Christian. She's my sister. She's my co-heir. She's my partner in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have an order and arrangement that God has dictated in this day, but in heaven, it'll be a different matter. He recognizes this in a full essence. I'd be remiss if I didn't also say when he's speaking of sister, he's talking about the exclusivity. He had no right to marry an unregenerate person. He covered that previously in the book. He's talking about marrying a believer. Keep your child focused. To every decision they make, their life has a purpose. It matters what they do with their life. It matters who their friends are. It matters who their girlfriend or boyfriend is. It matters these things. Don't tarnish them. Prompt them. Encourage them to seek things which are above. Ask them the $10 million question, what does God want from you? How is God pleased with this? Make them defend it with biblical principles. Why? Because they're important to the Almighty God. Teach them the Scriptures. Be what the Scripture commands of you to be. Let it illuminate your path so that they can act accordingly. Do not put out the light of Scriptures to the eyes of these children. There are some things that are ignored, yet can be reclaimed. You go places today and you'll find reclaimed wood, you know. Came off a barn and it got weathered and beat up and ugly and somebody took it off, cleaned it off, and they can build something fantastic. There are things that can be ignored and reclaimed. There are things that can be discarded, yet recycled for another purpose. There are things that can be forgotten and yet repurposed. But children are a treasure. They are the link to a potential, a potential ministry that one may never otherwise have had. Don't waste them. Touch. Important lessons. Let's stand with the Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.